Well, good morning to our Ebenezer family. It's Pastor Kelly here this morning. Uh, today we are continuing our summer series entitled A Long Walk with Jesus. Uh, we're looking at several parables that Jesus told, as well as several interactions that he had with different people. In order to just gain a deeper understanding of Jesus' character and his love for, for us as, as people. Daily Bread shared a story a while back where commuters on a Canadian metro train witnessed a heart-moving conclusion to a tense moment. They watched as a 70-year-old woman gently reached out and offered her hand to a young man whose loud voice and disturbing words were scaring other passengers. The lady's kindness calmed the man who sank to the floor on the, of the train with tears in his eyes. He said, thanks, Grandma stood up and then walked away. The woman later admitted to being afraid, but she said, I'm a mother and he needed someone to touch. Well, better judgment might have given her reason to keep her distance, she took a risk of love. Today, we're looking at the impact of touch, in particular, the power of Jesus' touch as he literally reached out and touched many who were sick and struggling with disease, um, many who were outcasts and on the edge of society. And I've asked one of our missionaries uh, to help me dig into this today. So I want to introduce Leif Stolte. We've got him up here on Zoom. He's joining us from Toronto. How are you doing, Leif? Hi, Kelly. I'm doing pretty good, thanks. Pleasure good. to be here. Great. great great to have you. Now, you actually have some history with Ebenezer, if I understand right. That's true. I do. I've been a member of Ebenezer since, was it 1988, I think? 1988 or 1989, somewhere in there. We moved to Saskatoon in December of 87, uh, and shortly thereafter discovered Ebenezer. Yeah. Now, I don't know if we actually want to put a date on it, but you were in Leighton's youth group, right? <laughs> well, yes, and as Leighton likes to say, I was his youth group for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know what? I've, I've heard him say that. So we could have some interesting conversations down that track, I'm sure. But uh, we want to chat about some other stuff today uh, that's far more important. Uh, you are involved with a place called Sanctuary. It's an inner city Christian ministry in downtown Toronto, and you serve there as the artistic director. So tell us a little bit about Sanctuary. Well, the easiest way to describe Sanctuary is just through our uh, mission or vision statement, which is that Sanctuary is becoming a healthy, welcoming community where the poor and excluded are particularly valued. This is an expression of the good news embodied in Jesus Christ. And we, uh, through, we engage community through different activities throughout the week, drop-ins, healthcare, the arts, housing, outreach, funerals, celebrations, a wide variety of activities. Yeah. So there's a bit of the mission statement and then some practical pieces as to what you do. Uh, what, what is your actual role in the midst of all that? Um, my role is artistic director slash actor in residence slash uh, general community worker. I, my main role there is to engage people relationally through theater, arts, storytelling activities. Okay. That's my main role. And then on top of that, we also, every staff member is required to uh, help host our regular community meals, participate in kind of one-on-one -on -one engagement with community, um, facilitate where we can access to um, healthcare services. We have nurses on staff, um, but beyond that, taking people to 
hospital appointments, um, sometimes, a lot of times, actually just being a friend. Mm. It's kind of the, the simplest thing that we do when a lot of people who are, you know, suffering from oppression and uh, oppressive systems, they don't often have friends. And so that's one of the simplest things that we try to offer is friendship. It's amazing what friendship will do. So, I mean, you've got all of those other things and, you know, and that, that doesn't ever end. You know, we're always a friend. Uh, and, and you've obviously got a family too. Uh, as we yep. started to roll a little bit here today, I, I saw your dog in the background, got a quick introduction. <laughs> tell us, tell us about your family. Uh, well, uh, my wife, Jennifer, and I have been married for 14 years now. It's uh, been an amazing time. We have two boys. Our oldest, Dayan, is 13, just graduated grade eight. And our youngest, Levi, who's 11, still homeschooled. And uh, they're both enthusiastic and energetic boys who love the outdoors, uh, love imagination activities. And uh, right now, they're both really into graphic novels. Uh, and Dayan actually really enjoys um, kind of more nonfiction books uh, that, that span a whole range of things from, um, from real life stories about the Vietnamese War to um, there was a biography he read about someone in uh, is it Africa working, working with wild dogs. So it's wow. quite the range. <laughs> I love your choice of names, by the way. If you ever check out our Sunday mornings, my Levi, my youngest, is drumming on, on Sundays. So you'll have to check it out. So Nice. You're, you're a busy guy. Um, and I, I'm glad, so, so glad that you've taken the time to be with us today. We are Thank going you to for look the opportunity. At, oh, yeah, for sure. Now, the story we're looking at today is actually found in Luke chapter 5 and Mark chapter 1. And this is Jesus' healing of the man with, with leprosy. And I'm primarily sticking to the Luke account here today. I'll read uh, the first verse from that, Luke 5, 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. So what was leprosy like? That's the question that everyone asks. Um, leprosy or Hansen's disease, as we know it today, is caused by a bacterial infection that can lead to damage of the respiratory tract, uh, skin, eyes, and nerves. So typically, from what I understand, blotches and scaly spots would develop on the skin, along with loss of eyebrows and eyelashes. And of course, nerve damage resulted in the inability for the person to, to feel pain. So if someone with leprosy often injured themselves and they struggled with infection simply because they couldn't, they couldn't feel pain. Um, as a result, those with leprosy were often missing extremities like fingers and toes, sometimes lips, uh, ears, even possibly hands and feet completely if, if the infection was advanced. Um, because of this infection, a terrible stench often surrounded the leper as well. Now, the man Jesus encountered was covered with leprosy, according to verse 12. So his illness was advanced. The scaly spots had probably progressed to, and I mean, this is gross, but to pussy nodules. And I've read that nodules would often form on the, on the vocal cords as well. And so the individual had a raspy voice. Um, there's also a number of social and societal expectations placed on those with the disease. The leper had to wear torn clothes. Um, people with torn jeans, I guess, would be right, right, you know, in style with that. But that's that's what they did. They had to wear torn clothes. Hair must be unkept, 
And in a way, they looked, they were expected to look like someone who was in grieving. Um, some suggested that they were in fact mourning, but it was their, their own ultimate death that they were grieving. Since leprosy was transmitted through a cough or contact with the fluid from the nose of someone who had the disease, the leper had to cover their face uh, from the nose down. So picture someone, and we're getting, trying to get into the passage here now, someone dressed in rags, hair all over the place, covered in pussing lumps, voice raspy, fingers and toes missing or curled into hooks, face perhaps started to distort, covered with infection. I mean, the man who approached Jesus was in a nasty, nasty state. The look and the smell alone was terrifying for most people. There was also the social isolation to consider. Leviticus 13 says that lepers are commanded to live outside the camp. They weren't allowed to live in towns or cities. So if you had leprosy, you had to leave your home and your village. You could no longer see your family and friends. And typically those with leprosy lived in quarantine. Now, if for any reason you had to leave the leper colony, you couldn't come within 50 feet of a populated area. And if it was windy, from what I understand, the distance was 200 feet. The leper as well had to call out unclean whenever they went as a warning to others. Now, because those with leprosy couldn't work, they relied on their family for basic necessities. But over time, this support would dry up because the one with leprosy was already considered dead despite living an average of nine years. Nine years, you know, after contracting the disease. So leprosy was an absolutely horrible condition that left the individual without help, destitute, and really without hope. It was a long-term death sentence where the individual essentially rotted away. Um, one writer said leprosy was a terrible progressive disease in which the individual died by inches. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that. Um, but I, I want to draw you in here, Leif. Um, what are some of the modern-day lepers that we might have in our culture that, that we might see every day and not even necessarily realize that they're there? Well, I mean, if you think of leprosy and a person with leprosy as someone who is outcast kind of through no fault of their own, really, we have, I mean, we have lepers everywhere, right? It's, it wouldn't be uncommon um, for a lot of people to think that anyone who isn't a quote-unquote productive member of society would be considered an outcast, you know? And that's essentially what a, what a leper was considered then, was, was an outcast. You know, there are people who... Uh, People who have no control over their perceived disabilities, whether they be physical, mental, emotional, uh, or even fiscal disabilities, you know, a person who was born the way that they were has been stigmatized since they were born, often told they're worthless and a burden on society. You know, you mentioned, um, you mentioned how lepers had to rely on their family. A lot of people with physical disabilities in our society have to rely on the government, uh, and they often get stigmatized for that, simply through no fault of their own. They were born the way that they were born. A lot of these, um, these physical disabilities leave them unable to be, quote-unquote, productive members of society, and so then they're looked down upon for needing help from the government. That's you know, would be one example of a modern day leper the elder the elderly right um 
they're considered a drain on on society and as soon as they're you know as soon as they can't help anymore we we put them away into a long-term care home or something like that where other people can take care of them and sure we visit from time to time but we've cast them out of the core of our communities you know and those are just a, a couple examples you also have people with mental health issues some who like i know people with mental health issues who they just they can't control their responses to things and that really terrifies people you know i think of the story of jesus and the demon possessed man you know you you have people who behave like that demon possessed man nowadays except they're not demon possessed they have a mental health issue um, but we treat them the same way. We ostracize them. We shun them. We cast them out. Um, you know, um, let's see, who else? People who have no way to earn money. You know, people that we have considered, uh, I don't know what the best way to put it is, but we tell people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And the challenge is, is that you need boots to be able to pull up. And there are a lot of people nowadays who, through no fault of their own, through a lot of um, choices from politicians and bureaucrats in our system that have led them, you know, when they, when they farm um, work overseas because it's cheaper, that leaves people without the opportunity for work, right? Um, and then, people get blamed when other people come in and say, I'll do the work for cheaper, right? Well, it's, it's a whole bunch of choices that, peop that people in power have made and then blame the people that, that the consequences roll out onto instead of understanding that actually the politicians have made the choices that have led people to be where they are right now. And it's not affecting the politicians at all. They don't have to worry about their jobs necessarily. So these are, you know, modern day lepers. You know, when you start yeah. looking at all those scenarios, I mean, there, there are lepers around everywhere. Exactly. Uh, you know, we, we need eyes to see that. I'm going to jump back into the passage here. The next verse says that when, uh, when the leper saw Jesus, verse 12 mm -hmm. here, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, the leper wasn't sure if Jesus would be willing to help. Now, because of the condition, his condition rather, and societal norms, he was used to being shunned and rejected. And from what I understand, those who were healthy would at times actually throw stones at someone with leprosy in order to force them to keep their distance. Now, that's way more extreme than anything I've encountered in a grocery store lately. You know, but this, this is over the top. But Jesus was not a stone thrower. He was if not I a may, stone Kelly. thrower. If, if I may, it's, uh, it may seem over the top, but I've actually had experiences with people in my community who've been spit on when they're sitting mm. on the sidewalk, who have been hit in the face by a police baton just because they're sitting on the sidewalk. Mm. Uh, and so lepers these days, people that kind of share a similarity to, to lepers in Jesus' time, they actually do have to worry about those kind of things, same, same kind of things, yeah. just because we don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't happen and that's my privilege to work at sanctuary is i get to bear witness 
to the fact that culture hasn't changed as much as we would like to think it has. Mm. So we had stone throwers then. We have quote unquote stone throwers now in different ways, I suppose. Yes, we do. Jesus wasn't one of those. No. When we see the passage, he was always willing to engage anyone who was, who was there to, to seek him. And because mm-hmm. of this, I think those on the fringes were drawn to him. And he, and he welcomed them. He never turned anyone away. And it didn't matter their condition, uh, whether they were destitute or unacceptable socially or sick or, or poor or even a leper. And, and I think this brings us to the first point today that we want to make from the passage. Jesus willy, uh, willingly welcomes all who come to him, regardless of situation or condition. We don't have to keep our distance from Christ because of our issues or because of our past. Uh, Jesus welcomes everyone who's sincerely seeking him. But the unfortunate reality for many of our churches today is that there are um, some on the fringe, lots on the fringe, who are just not drawn to church. And if they are, the church doesn't really seem to know what to do with them. So when Mm -hmm. we talked last week, Leif, you described how the initial vision of sanctuary was to welcome and include those who found it difficult to fit in to our, our kind of traditional or maybe even contemporary churches. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, yeah, actually, the the way kind of the Sunday evening service began at Sanctuary. Um, so Sanctuary started in 1991-1992, and originally it was it was Greg Paul uh, and uh, a couple others just going out on the streets, sitting on the streets with people, meeting them where they're at. Eventually, that turned into kind of sandwiches and small meals. Um, hosted at what is uh, at the church that is now Sanctuary on 25 Charles Street East. Uh, from that meal program, what happened is the men and women who came there said to Greg, Greg, you know, we need church. We love God. We love Jesus. But churches won't accept us. Churches won't welcome us. We're often told to leave. Could you do something for us? And so Greg, who was who was speaking at a lot of churches on Sunday mornings, was like, yeah, sure, okay, Sunday night. And so it started out as one Sunday a month in the evening because that's when he was available. They would sit in the basement of Sanctuary and have a worship time. Well, it, it got popular because people who weren't welcome at any other church in downtown all of a sudden had a place where they felt like they could be themselves, where they could be themselves before God in all of their honest, raw beauty. And so it went from one night, a, one night a month to two nights a month to where we have it now every single Sunday night. Uh, and it is just a wonderful, amazing service. Mm. It sounds like you really enjoy your work. That's, that's awesome. I know it's taxing for sure, but it's good to see the passion in you. Um, Jesus continues with, with his, the story. Let's, let's look back at that, verse 13. So Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. He said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now, there were several, um, there were several issues with touching a leper. First of all, there was a health risk. You don't want someone with COVID to sneeze in your face. We just don't want that. And you didn't want a leper to touch you. <laughs> now, it wasn't just about contracting leprosy. Um, Touching a leper was actually prohibited by Jewish law. It made anyone who touched them spiritually unclean. And that uncleanliness then excluded you from your spiritual community. So no one touched a leper. Didn't matter who you were, 
didn't matter what position you held, no one touched a leper, it just wasn't done. Now, if we look at some of the other instances in scripture where Jesus healed, we find that he spoke and people were healed. Um, hmm. There were times as well when he healed from a distance. Jesus wasn't even in the room, and a healing took place in, in another place, in another home. Um, but here, Jesus reached out, and he intentionally touched the man. He chose to touch the leper in order to bring about his healing. And this, this wasn't a, a little finger touch or a little pinky touch. Um, the word that's actually used here from the scriptures, it means to fasten to with intent to move. Mm. So I guess was, this was a, a grasp, nearly. And in the Mark account of this interaction, it says in verse 41 of chapter 1, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. So there's a compassionate response here. Some, some translations say Jesus was indignant. Uh, he was worked up. He was feeling this deeply about what was going on. And I think it was all of the societal stuff that, that was happening that, that made Jesus upset, that made him angry, that caused him to respond with compassion. And I think even there are some that say the, the, the larger sin issue that we as, a, as people encounter was something that he was frustrated with as, as well. And so this touch was intentional and it was purposeful. We were talking about this at a preaching team meeting, and, and Leighton said, I, I'm sure all the oxygen was just drawn right out of the space in that very moment, and I'm sure it was. Like Jesus touched the untouchable, and the man must have well, wept rather as, as he felt that physical touch after being robbed of it probably for years. Mm-hmm. Now, that touch of Jesus was powerful. It brought value to that person. It brought dignity. I think it said, you know, I, I understand in some ways. It said, I love you for sure. And these were statements of worth that this man hadn't heard for a long, long time. So, so Leif, in what ways do you see your ministry, quote-unquote, touching people? Like, we're supposed to distance in this era, so that's not the right word. But I think we get what, uh, what we're going after here. How, do, how does your ministry bring dignity and value to those people that you engage with all the time, this community that you love? Well, the no-touching thing is just recent, right? Yeah. And so, actually, touch is a huge part. Um, there are people in our community who don't have family or if they do have family, it's family that has rejected them. And so these are people that actually welcome a hug that they actually look forward to coming to sanctuary because they know that when they come there, they are going to be greeted with open arms. And so sure we have a hiccup right now with COVID-19 and there's, you know, there's this no touching thing at the moment, but that's, that hasn't, that's brand new. And so a lot of sanctuary, a lot of what we do, there is a lot of physical touch. I mean, our nurses, actually one of the ways that our nursing um, team started to, to be what it was, was through foot washing. It was through the act of washing people's feet in our drop-in space of doing that very intentional healthcare activity that actually is also a spiritual activity and that touch like there you know how you try to imagine what a leper was like some of these men some of these people's feet that i that even just i've seen let alone what the nurses have seen it's comparable and and yet, to have someone touch your feet is such an intimate 
fasting can be such a spiritual gesture and a gesture of love and acceptance. And that is what we try to do at Sanctuary. Yeah. A lot of the people there have been rejected their entire lives. They have been told they're worthless. They have been told you're, you're a burden on society. And so when we say, hey, we love you, come on in for a meal. You want to go for a coffee sometime? You know, I want to be seen in public with you. Mm. Let's, let's go out for a coffee. Um, even, even in this day and age, hey, do you want to come in and have a shower? A lot of places in Toronto, the showers are shut down. Public toilets are shut down. And so, you know, that act of welcoming people into the building and saying, hey, look, we have something and we want to share that with you. Mm. Come on that's in, powerful. take a shower. Yeah. That's powerful. There's that willingness there to engage, a, very, a deep willingness. There's some powerful stuff that's happening there, I can see. J Jesus was willing. Uh, and I'm just going to look at that section from 13 again. Um, Jesus said, be clean, and immediately the, the leprosy left him. He was willing to touch. He was willing to engage. Now, to those watching, it appeared that Jesus perhaps himself had become unclean. I mean, and that's what they knew. After all, he touched a leper, right? But yep. this was not the case. When Jesus came into contact with the man, the disease was cured, and the man's skin became whole and clean. There, there was a, a literal physical healing that took place here. And there's also a spiritual component to this interaction, I think, that we need to recognize. It's interesting that the man asked to be made clean, not to be healed. Um, spiritually, leprosy was considered the embodiment of impurity. Leprosy represented sin. And just as leprosy separated the leper from his community and his family and his friends, uh, sin separates us from God. In the same way that only Jesus could cleanse the leper from his disease, it's only Jesus that can cleanse us from our sin and make us right with God. So when Jesus was asked in faith for cleansing, he was more than willing to do the cleansing miracle because he saw the faith that this man also had in this whole, in this whole situation. And so in like fashion, when we approach Jesus in faith, he is willing to forgive and make us clean. And I think that brings us to the second point here. Jesus' touch is able to cleanse us before God. When we come to God with a heart of repentance and confession, God forgives us through the work of Jesus and makes us clean before him. The impurity of sin is removed and, and it's taken away by Christ, just as the leper's disease was removed. First John 1 John 1.9, for some it's a familiar passage. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you're interested, there's a, a slide I hope that's going to be coming up here that talks about um, how to connect if people want more information, if they want to have conversation about this. And we'd be more than, than happy to just have a conversation if, if that's what someone would like. So Jesus cleansed the man. And then verse 14, Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now in Luke 7.22, John the Baptist messengers actually came to Jesus to ask him if he was the Messiah. And Jesus gives a really interesting response. He <laughs> says, well, what are you seeing? He names a number of miracles and many sites, the curing of lepers is one of the signs affirming him as the Messiah. Uh, in, Levit in Leviticus 13 and 14, uh, we find the religious leaders, uh, the religious law rather, contain practices and sacrifices that pertain to those with skin diseases. So by asking the leper to go show himself to the priest, Jesus, I think, was honoring the Old Testament law. 
But more importantly, Jesus was also giving testimony to the fact that he was the Messiah, saying, this is who I am. The last part of the verse says, do this as a testimony to them. No one had been cleansed of leprosy before. Only God has the ability to cure this disease. And I'm sure as the priest was preparing these sacrifices um, that were acquired for someone who was cleansed of leprosy, all sorts of questions must have been rotating through his mind. How could this have happened? I don't get this. I've never prepared this sacrifice before. Was this truly the work of God? Is Jesus really who he said he is? And the healing of the leper was only one of a multitude of miracles that revealed Jesus as Messiah. But we know from the Gospels that the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders refused to accept him. But I, I, I see this morning that that brings us to our next point, and that's this. Jesus is who he said he was. He is who he said he is. He's the son of God. He walked among us. He gave himself as a sacrifice to make us right with God, and he empowers us um, for ministry by the sending of the Spirit. And so, Leif, I want to draw you in here again. How have you, you, you guys have a tough job there. In some ways, it sounds relaxed. Let's go for coffee with people that have meals. But man, the stuff you hear, I know, is, is huge. And the ministry that you have on so many fronts, it's, it's waiting. Like you take it home. So I want to draw you in here, Leif, as, as we've talked about this. How, how have you experienced the empowering of God in your ministry? You've got, you've got tough stuff. You know, first it could sound easy. Well, let's go for coffee with people. But there's weighty conversations and there's, there's weighty stuff that people are coming with and coming from. And there's a lot that comes with that. So how, how have you experienced the empowering of God to do, to do the work that you're doing? Well, I mean, it's a couple things. The, uh, the first thing was God just shattered the rose-colored glasses that I used to view the world with. Um, I mean, this, that began when I was 19. He kind of just took them right off my face and crushed them. And uh, what, it, what it enabled, <laughs> what, it, what it revealed to me was that the world is so much more beautiful without those rose-colored glasses on. I get to see all of the amazing color, the light, the darkness, and everything in between that God has used to paint this world. There's no tint on it anymore, and that actually makes it a lot more beautiful. Being able to sit and recognize that beauty has helped me to, to see people for the complex, wonderful brothers and sisters that they are to me. With rose-colored glasses, I didn't have the opportunity to see them in all of their complexity. I only saw them one way. And so God opened my eyes. I think the other way that he has, he has helped me is he has, uh, he has allowed me, he's allowed my skin to be a little bit tougher uh, than it used to be. Um, and that's really important in this line of work because we, we have power and we have privilege. And I recognize those things. And one of the things that I endeavor to do with my power and privilege is to absorb the hate, the vitriol, the, just the animosity that pours out from people who See, see people that they can't identify with and, and refuse 
actually refuse to see them as human beings, only see them as, and, and you can place whatever label you want to on them, but that is how they see them. And so, I mean, if, like, it just, and, and that in and of itself opens my eyes, because if, if it hurts me as much as it does with, with the fact that I have a family that loves me, I have a house to go home to, I have a steady job and steady income, um, I have friends who don't use me for anything other than friendship, if it hurts me this much to, to witness and to receive, to, to have people drive by sanctuary and shout expletives at us as we, as we feed people, to, to threaten to shut us down, to actually tell us that we are violating people's human rights by giving them tents, by feeding them. If it hurts me this much, imagine how much it hurts someone who has none of that. And mm -hmm. so that is my privilege is to absorb that, as much of that as I can, and to, to be compassionate, to suffer with my community, to, to smile with them when there is a moment to smile, to see their beauty, <laughs> to be... <sighs> to be a witness that they are my brothers and sisters, that they are children of God, that that is, that is their definition, that none of the other labels matter that people throw on them, that people spit at them, that people hit them with, that they are children of God, that they are my brothers and sisters, and it is my privilege and my honor to witness that. That's a powerful, powerful thing, man. To have those glasses removed to see people as, as Jesus saw, to hear their stories, to carry that. And I, I, I know for me, man, when you hear tough stories, part of that thing that it seems that the Spirit of God does as well is, is he's there to, to, to just unload to. Because I know I can't take it all in. Like a sponge eventually is full. I just got to wring it out and say, hey, God, this is yours. Not that I quit caring, but I can't hold it all because it would just do me in and and there's mm -hmm. something in that that, you know, the Spirit of God does is in, in terms of empowering us for ministry. So, uh, verse 15, uh, I'm just going to pop back to the passage here. News about Jesus spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Now, Jesus asked the man to, to keep quiet. And the inference here is that he just couldn't. I mean, I, I get that. <laughs> You know, you'd want to talk about something like this amazing miracle that happened to him. And as, as the news spread, I mean, droves of people came to Jesus to hear him and be healed by him. And, and, but Jesus understood his priority in the midst of all this. He knew that his work and his ministry was only a response to what the Father was doing. In John 19, 519, it says this, and this is Jesus speaking, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, Excuse me, whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus' times of prayer and communion with his Father, I mean, those were his lifeline. <clears throat> and he had to keep that intact. And so here's the next point I, I think we see here in the passage. Jesus understood his relationship with his Father was imperative to his, to his ministry, and he prioritized that. He knew that this was the key to all of what he was accomplishing. 
to all of, of the bigger picture work that he was doing. And it's amazing to read the Gospels. And there's some things that if we keep them in mind and we're watching for them as we read, all of a sudden it starts popping like we never saw before. And this is one of those things that I've noticed. Like, Jesus is always gone. He's always praying. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed is what the scripture says. He, he spent the whole night multiple times praying. And he modeled such a significant prayer life that his disciples obviously noticed it. And they said, teach us to pray. So time with the Father was Jesus' way of life. That, that's huge. Um, now, as we've looked at the passage and chatted this morning, I think that there are a few applications that we can make here. And here's the first one. I mean, we have a responsibility to reach out to those who are on the fringes of our society. Jesus did this. This was a big MO for him. It's just, it was how he operated. Um, we see this in the story with the leper and in so many other places in the Gospels. Jesus hung out with the people that were not the, the privileged. He hung out with those who are on the fringes of society, with the poor, the destitute. He spent a lot of time with those people. And I think as a follower of Jesus, it's a part of our, our calling to discipleship, to, is, to, is to minister in some way, to help, to be among in different ways. Uh, and so, so Leif, we, we need your help here. <laughs> we don't know how to do this very well. Uh, you understand this far better than we do, but what can we do in our, in our, to grow our capacity and our ability to reach out? So tell me about that, if you could. Uh, that's, a, that's a big one. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's, really, it's really quite simple. Um, one of the ways that we can first check it in ourselves is to recognize those moments when we are uncomfortable walking by someone on the street and to recognize that discomfort doesn't equal dangerous. That actually being uncomfortable is simply a, an uncultured response and that we need to move through that discomfort. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to make eye contact with someone. You know, I, when, when we do, um, uh, sometimes we do education sessions with uh, high schools. And one of the things that I, I, I talk to high schoolers about um, is I give them this kind of this idea of when you see a dog, someone walking a dog, and if you're a dog person, because not everybody's a dog person, but if you are a dog person and you see that dog, what do you do? Well, you, you bend down to it sometimes. You're like, oh, what a pretty dog. Oh my gosh, aren't you just beautiful? Right? And you just want to, you just want to pet it. You want to be with it. But what do we do when we walk by someone who's panhandling? A human being, someone who's made in the image of God, what do we do? Oftentimes, we look away. We don't make eye contact. We just walk by them. We don't even acknowledge that there is a human being in such, in such a desperate situation that the only thing left for them to do is to sit on the sidewalk and suffer the humiliation of being ignored by hundreds of people, if not thousands of people every day. And so the, the simplest way to start with something, if you, feel, if you feel comfortable, because the reality is, is that 
you might not have time and that's that's valid there are times when i'm walking by people and i don't have time but if you have time and if you're not too uncomfortable just make eye contact a simple hello with your eyes acknowledges that there is a human being there you can say hi and you can walk on by you've acknowledged them that is it that is a that is a huge first step um, you can volunteer at soup kitchens volunteer at drop-ins places in in, uh, in Saskatoon that have those opportunities and when I say volunteer I don't mean be someone who has the power to give out food I mean sit with someone listen to their story be be a witness to their humanity because a lot of people they don't get that they don't have people who are willing to listen to them and for no other purpose not for the purpose of evangelism not for the purpose of preaching but for the purpose of witnessing for the purpose of receiving their story those are two great ways to start mm. and they're difficult but when we start to do that when the church starts to do that when we put people who are oppressed and marginalized at the center of the church think of the church a healthy church as a heartbeat that when they're there when people who are oppressed people who are marginalized people who are on the fringes of society they if they're at the heart of the church then they have people around them covering them with prayer covering them with love and as they become healthier they move to the outside and that makes more room for people at the center of the church mm. and so it's a heartbeat it's constantly flowing people in to the center and out in and out as opposed to what can often happen in churches and it doesn't always happen but what can often happen in churches is you have the healthiest people at the center and then it's a fight to get in mm. instead of surrounding people with love you are people are fighting to feel the love and so yeah when you have people who are pressed right at the center it's that's the kingdom of god right there man there's some good stuff there leaf um <laughs> I, I wish i had a pen here and taken notes but I, I love that discomfort doesn't always mean dangerous and just being present being a witness by your presence really is, is I, mm -hmm. I could kind of encapsulate what you were saying it's huge and, and that heartbeat picture really good stuff um I, I got a second application here um the disciple of jesus makes a difference in culture not culture on the disciple and i think there's a, a picture here when jesus touched the leper he didn't become infected with the disease or unclean instead the uncleanliness was removed by jesus and i think sometimes we as believers can become so con so deeply consumed in situations where we desire to minister that that we actually get consumed by them and we can we can lose our witness for christ and this is just a really simple little story but i shared lots of times in our church i took a break from ministry from two years i don't know if i told you mm -hmm. that or not but took a break yeah. and swung a hammer yeah went back to construction and worked with a bunch of guys and I met some really great people. This was only a few years back, and I stay in touch with some of these fellows even now, and, and they're friends, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, having lunch with my old project manager a little bit ago, 
he told me that when I first started uh, in construction in the company, that he and another guy actually made bets as to how long it would take me to start swearing. They made bets. <laughs> and that was my reaction when he told me this too, right? Um, rough language is just kind of a part of working on site, right? And I guess they relished the thought of this preacher dropping a few bombs here and there. And they, they, they were making bets on this, but they both lost. It, it just didn't happen. It's not who I am. And this, this story comes afterwards, but he really respected me for that. You know, I, I kept my posture. I kept who I was. I didn't change in the midst of this. And, and it's a small thing, but I think my witness was up, upheld by, by that. Whereas talking to Blue Streak, I think would have hurt my witness. But it, it's about God, I think, using us to affect change for him. Not us being changed, but us. Well, we're changed in the process as we understand but allowing him to make change overall. Um, and there's an application uh, here as well, application three. And that's our relationship with God is the key to making the difference. Us making an impact on culture for the sake of God, I think comes just like, it comes out of being rooted in Christ, just like it was Jesus with his time with the Father. And I'm simply going to read a, a section from John 15 here. Verse one, I'm the true vine, my father's the gardener. Verse 4, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, and I guess it's for all of us, apart from him, we can do nothing. But practical question now. I'm going to push that other one a little further. You, you gave us some really good stuff there. Practically, you talked about being present. Um, what are some other ways perhaps that we can push that envelope for ourselves maybe even a little bit further? <sighs> we probably answered this in part a little bit, but... Um, yeah. I mean... Well, I think actually being a witness is a really difficult thing to do. To sit and to listen to someone's story without wanting to say anything, without needing to say anything, is incredibly difficult. I mean, I think there's, um, there was, there was uh, what was it? I've read a couple books on communication and listening. And one of the things that I, I remember is that we often, what is it? It's seven or 17 seconds that we can listen before we have a response. It's just, it's, mm. it, we naturally want to respond and think we should respond and stuff like that. And so it's actually an active practice to not say anything, to not even want to say anything, to, to listen without the urge to speak, you know, uh, be, be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to grow angry, right? So scripture teaches us. And so I would even go so far as to say, don't speak. Be quick to listen. And don't speak. Yeah. The person will give you the permission to speak, but don't speak until they give you permission. Because they have something that they need to share. And they probably haven't had a lot of people willing to listen. The challenge then with that is that 
you may receive a story that is actually really traumatic. And so then you need to do your due diligence in processing that story with a professional. Um, trauma, trauma is difficult. It's why we at Sanctuary, every single staff member has their own trauma therapist. Um, because the work that we do exposes us to trauma on an almost daily basis. Mm. And so we need professional help, not just when we listen to someone else's story and receive, receive their trauma vicariously. The other day I witnessed, I witnessed an assault that fortunately the guy didn't die, but we weren't sure all weekend whether or not he, so I witnessed an assault that was almost a homicide. Mm. That's a difficult thing to sit with. Again, my privilege allows me to have the space to have a professional counselor in my life. And so it is my responsibility doing the work that I do to do what Jesus did. Take those times away. Go with the Father. Go with people who know, what, who know how to help me process a lot of this stuff and to process it so that I can come back and I can come back as healthy as I can. Mm. And whenever we listen to someone's story, we need to recognize that we ha it, there's always the potential to receive trauma. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a reality because a lot of people who are oppressed, who live on the margins of society, their life is an ongoing series of traumatic events from being spit on to the ever-present cultural kind of boogeyman that sits on their shoulders telling them they need to be a productive member of society and it has to look this way that's there all the time and it and it hounds them and it contorts them and it sinks its claws into them and they it's just always there. And so when you sit with someone, you are bound to receive trauma of some sort. We need to be willing to do that. Yeah. Willing to listen. That's great stuff. Um, Leaf, willing to listen. Willing to listen without interrupting. Um, willing to listen and be comfortable with our own confusion. Yep. Willing to listen and be comfortable with our own discomfort. And just say, hey, Lord, you take that. I'm listening now. Spirit of God, you're listening to this conversation too. Help me to be attentive. And then when the really difficult stuff comes along, I'm so glad to hear that you guys have, have people that you can kind of debrief with and download with. And I mean, obviously that happens with the Father. And it's so nice to have someone with skin on in that moment too that can do that as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for... Uh, <laughs> being patient at the beginning as we got our tech in order and uh, just, it's been great to talk to you and, and present um, big thing you've opened. I think uh, you've been a window for us into some opportunities that might be out there. And I really appreciate the fact you're not, you're not on the sidelines, like you're in the trenches. You're in there every day and uh, you speak out of experience. So we appreciate that so much. So thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks for challenging us as well. Some things that we can do. Appreciate that. And last time you were in Saskatoon, we grabbed a coffee. Hopefully we can travel again soon and you can swing by and we can do that again. I really enjoyed that. 
I'd love to, Kelly. That would be awesome. And I'd love to just pray with you here as we we wind this up today. So thank you for the opportunity. No, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity uh, to share today. I really appreciate it, and it's always nice to dive into Scripture and to uh, to witness the radical nature of Jesus. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you. Lord, I want to thank you today for an opportunity to chat. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we could could look into that and just see the amazing picture of who Jesus was as he interacted with those who are on the edge of of our culture and society. And thank you that he was so willing um, in so many ways. Thank you for Leaf today. Thank you for the ministry that he has in Sanctuary. And I thank you that you're with him every day as he goes. I thank you that he willingly engages people, that he um, dives deep and listens well. And Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen him and protect him and encourage him, give him just meaningful times with you where he's energized again to, to go out and be you, to be your hands and feet in these places. And so I give him to you for that good work to be continued in him and through him. And I just want to pray for Jennifer and the guys too, uh, as Leaf will come home. And I know he's spent in a multitude of ways. I pray that you just energize him to to be dad and husband at home as well. And, and Father, I pray that you protect him in this time um, of COVID and, and all of the different dynamics that are surrounding God. Just bless him in that place. Um, give us understanding as well here at Ebenezer as to how we can reach out. Help us to understand that and actually step into that and respond to what you might be calling us to do. So we give you praise for the work that you're doing, for the example that you've been, for the way that you work um, in our missionaries and in us and through us as well. We give you praise and we give you thanks and we give all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for being with us, Leif. Uh, blessings. Thanks, Say hi to your family. I met Jennifer for a minute there earlier. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll get to meet her in person sometime, but uh, blessings to you and, and you take care. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Likewise. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Welcome to Ebenezer's podcast a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's lead pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.